0: once again to be that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, as most of you know, we primarily teach through books of the Bible. And even on weeks that we do something more topical, we're still hopefully prayerfully proclaiming this is what the Bible says, and thus this is what God says. Our goal, our desire during this time, which is a very small time that's part of the crossing church this preaching time but our goal and desire is not to entertain or impress you with how well we speak or how smart we are we just want to say this is what god says this is what the bible says let's think about how to live this out as god's people and this is why we teach the bible the bible alone is the revelation of who god is the bible alone is the recording and testimony to the gospel the person and work of jesus there's no other source on equal standing to the scriptures. There's no other source like the Bible. Every other book, every other speech, every sermon we reference has to be filtered back to the scriptures to make sure it's in accord with the scriptures. God has graciously decided to make himself known. Some of that revelation does come through creation. So when you're experiencing thunderstorms and the beauty and the majesty and the power and the might of creation. Okay, there is a God. And Romans 1 tells us that the God that's revealed in creation is so powerful that there will be no person on the face of the earth who will stand before God one day and say, I didn't know there was a creator. God will point to creation and say, no, you did know. There's creation. The design, the beauty, the power, the majesty is of such that no one has an excuse." But as amazing as creation is, too amazing to chalk it up to luck or cosmic happenstance, there's too much inherent design to deny there must be a designer. As amazing as creation is, creation alone is not enough to know who God is. So God ultimately had to make himself known through his son, Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was a man, though, you might say, who lived 2,000 years ago. What about the vast majority of people who haven't lived and known Jesus personally in his incarnate form? Well, that's why we have the scriptures, the written word testifying to the living word, Jesus. The scriptures written before Jesus arrived in his incarnate ministry were pointing to his coming, preparing the way, revealing the brokenness of humanity and all the false gods that we were trying to worship won't satisfy, won't save us. The scriptures written after his coming, pointing back to his reality. He really did come. He really was alive. He really was crucified. He really did die, and he really did rise from the dead. He he really did ascend into the heavens, and he is coming back. So examine the evidence. Examine the truth claims of Christianity. Examine that these things really happened. Do your research. Let us help you. If you're a little bit skeptical, I was there before. Put all the evidence on the table let's dig into it Christianity is not a blind faith it's a a faith that can be examined it can be tested and it will prove itself to be true because it is true and the best explanation for what happened in the first century was what the Bible says happened and if that's true if Jesus really did those things then it's all true and all the promises of God from Genesis to Revelation find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus He's he's that central to who we are. He's that essential to what we do. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, this is a waste of time. What we're doing is pointless. It's vain. So we, as God's people, are devoted to study, read, memorize, and drive the word of God deep into our hearts and lives. We are devoted to make it the primary means of instruction for all that we do as a church, as families, as individuals. How is our life living out the reality of the life of Jesus as we see in the scriptures? This book is not like a set of rules or commands to follow. You can't just take this book like an instruction manual and think that you can follow it and put together a life that is good, that is satisfying, apart from knowing the God who wrote the book, who revealed himself in the book. We're the only religion that has a founder who said, I actually rose from the dead. I'm not still dead. You can't just have my instructions apart from me, you have to have me in order to live out these these instructions, in order to obey these commands. Relationship with Jesus is essential to understanding the Bible, believing the Bible, obeying the Bible. All other religions, you can follow those rules and those precepts, those disciplines, apart from knowing the actual founder of the religion. Christianity alone says, no, you have to know the one on which it's based what makes it unique it's, this book is a way of knowing who god is and how we can know him and enjoy him and live as his people and it's the ultimate authority for that it's been the ultimate authority of the bible for god's people for literally thousands of years it's cross-cultural it applies to every culture it's not just a first century book it's not just a jewish book it's not just a, a book that was in the ancient near east It's a book that's alive today and is being translated and spread to all people in all cultures and all languages because it applies to their culture too. And by God's grace, as we align ourselves we find that it is sufficient is relevant is powerful it literally changes our life like this room is filled with testimonies of God's power literally changing your life your life was headed this way God intervened literally changed your heart changed your mind made you a new person and now your life is headed this way you were headed toward destruction and now because of Jesus and the gospel you're headed toward life Like, it's literally miraculous. Miraculous is the intervention of the supernatural into the natural. It's literally miraculous. This room is filled with miraculous stories of God intervening and bringing life and bringing light and bringing hope and joy where there was death and despair and hopelessness. I could go on, but I hope I've laid a solid foundation for why the Scriptures hold this preeminent place in the hearts and lives of the people of God, including the Crossing Church. No other resource is more important or more valued or more loved. And the love of God for us, and thus, flowing out of that, our love for Him, drives us to flavor all of our life with this book. And I wanted to take a few moments to remind us of this reality, because sometimes we will come across passages that are so countercultural to how our world thinks and lives, we will be tempted to abandon God's word and say, well, that's no longer relevant. That doesn't apply. That seems ridiculous. I'm just going to take this section of the Bible and just cut it out of my life. I don't need it. It's not helpful. And the opening verses of 1 Peter 3 would be one of those passages. So as we read the word of God to his people, let's hear what he has for us today. In the same way, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over, without a word by the way their wives live, when they observe your pure reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight." For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs with, of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I was asked by somebody this past week if it was intentional for us to cover this passage on Father's Day. I was like, well, if God is sovereign, then there is no such thing as luck or happenstance or what have you. But it was not planned in a way to make sure this passage fell this Sunday. But the question did get me thinking, well, well, why not? Like the original plan was to cover verses 1 through 6 today and then verse 7 next week. But because it's Father's Day, let's flip it. Let's focus on verse 7 today, and then next Sunday we'll walk through the first six verses. Sound good? Like if that doesn't sound good, well, we're, there's no backup plan. That's what we're doing. Peter has this repeating phrase in verse 1 and verse 7 in the same way. It's, he's been in this discussion going back to chapter 2, verse 18, about how we relate to one another in such a way that shows the reality of the life of Jesus to the unbelieving culture around us. In a way that will hopefully cause them, as we saw in verse 12 of chapter 2, observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. So we saw how that works out in the relationships in the household or the workplace beginning in verse 18, how that's following the example of Jesus, even if our obedience causes us to suffer. And then we come into chapter 3, then how does that specifically look for a wife who's married to an unbelieving husband? How can she live in a way that will hopefully win him to faith in Jesus? And then we have this one verse to husbands in the same way, how are husbands supposed to live in light of these household relationships that show the reality of Jesus alive in us? You don't have the same impetus to win the unbelieving wife because in that culture, whatever the religion of the husband was, was the religion of the family. And so it's more unlikely that you would have a situation of a believing husband and unbelieving wife. But it was very likely to have a believing wife and an unbelieving pagan Gentile husband. And we'll deal with that next week. A lot of speculation about why the wives get six verses and we only get one. I won't go into all the theories. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. He knows what we need, and He knows that we probably can only handle one. But our wives can handle a lot more content. If you give us one verse, maybe some pictures, we might get it. But our wives can process more than we can. That's my theory. And so husbands, let's dig into our one verse. If you're here today and you aren't a husband or you don't have a husband, it's okay. You don't, you're not left out. You don't have to check out. You're, there's something there for you as well. Uh, there, this could be for single men who will be husbands one day for the first time or maybe again. This will be for single women who will know what to look for in a potential husband one day. This will be for everyone in the church, all singles To know what to expect from the husbands who are in the body of Christ that you're with. To know how to hold us accountable. Who who, Who are your brothers to know how to hold us accountable as husbands, what our lives should look like. And if you don't see this, it's your responsibility as a fellow believer, as a fellow member of this church, to speak up and encourage us. To pray for us, to exhort us, maybe even rebuke us if we're not living this out. And that responsibility and opportunity is extended to every single member of the body of Christ. And there's a way to do that with love and grace. Don't just go post on social media what a dog husband this person is. But it must be done for going to be a healthy body of believers. If you see a husband struggling to live this out, love them enough to pursue their repentance, to pursue their heart transformation. Pray for them. Seek godly counsel about how to make that issue known. But don't just stick your head in the sand and assume it just gets better. Or worse, assume that you have to stay silent because you don't have a voice. You have a voice. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and a member of this church, you have a voice. So, husbands, future husbands, wives of husbands, future wives of husbands, singles who are fellow church members of husbands, how should we live with our wives? Six things from this one verse. Number one, first, we live with our wives. That seems pretty obvious but it speaks of being present. Like lifestyle, sharing life with. Being physically present, yes. If you're going to understand her, you have to be around her. But this is more than just having the same mailing address. You have to be physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally present. We're not called to build great careers to the neglect of our families. We're not called to love our jobs and hobbies and bros more than we're called to love our wives and kids. And so there has to be healthy boundaries and margins in place in our life. Our jobs get this much time and no more. Our our hobbies get this much energy and focus, but no more. Sure, we all go through busy seasons in which our jobs require more of us. But if those seasons begin to be stretched into new normal realities, then we need to soberly and with wisdom consider serious changes. How to order our current use of time, and maybe even make career changes if we have such demanding jobs that make it virtually impossible to be present as a husband and as a father. Everyone should walk that out with others helping provide prayer and wisdom. These aren't easy decisions. But there are a lot of jobs that you can work to provide for your family. There aren't a lot of families that you can cycle through as you give your life to your job or your career. Hobbies are fun, nice, can be super healthy outlets, even missional opportunities, but even more than jobs, hobbies have to have their proper boundaries, our time, our energy, our finances. Super smart to choose hobbies you can do with your wife and kids. So you're having fun, but they're having fun with you. And if you're saying, yeah, but my hobby is my break from them. I need a break. Well, examine your heart. Why do you need such a break from them? I need peace and quiet. Yeah, that's important. Nothing wrong with wanting some time alone. Silence and solitude have long been disciplines of the people of God to a certain extent. I remember one time years ago, uh, Jennifer was going on a run. I was like, hey, how about I join you back when I could run with her? Long time ago. She's like, you're not going to talk to me, are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's my time it's just to be with me. Okay. So we we're running with each other in our own little silos. But live with your wives. Be present, not just physically. And you can work out time management and healthy boundaries to be physically present, but also emotionally and relationally. Like you are there. The device, the TV, the book, whatever is turned off, she has your focus and attention. You're as captivated by her presence as you were when you were trying to woo her originally. Right, guys? Like you remember that guy? Husbands, she fell in love with that guy. Dust him off, bring him back out, and let him be enraptured again with your bride in fresh ways because you are fully present, fully engaged, living with your wife. She will flourish knowing that once again she makes your eyes light up, she makes your heart beat faster, she's more interesting than what's on your phone. So be present, be engaged in every way as you live with your wife, which makes a ton of sense when we realize we're we're supposed to live with her in an understanding way. Secondly, live with her in an understanding way. Husbands, who knows your wife better, you or her algorithm? Understand her, become a student of her. Be curious, ask questions, listen, learn. There, There you go, Emma Grace. We're so wired to be problem solvers, fixers. Like our wives kind of say, have a problem. Well, here's what you should do. When often she just wants to be heard, empathized with, to know that you're in her corner. Not with another sermon about what's wrong with her, but with arms to hold her, our eyes to see her, our ears to hear her. Can we just listen and learn and understand? Do we really know her story? Do we really know how she sees life? What makes her tick? What sets her off? What is hurting? What is heavy? What is hard? Like if we could weekly sit and listen to how she's navigating life and how she's processing the load that she's carrying, and when she expresses a feeling, let me stop and define that real quick for us husbands, a feeling, We struggle sometimes with that. I know for most of us husbands, typically not true of all of us, but we can't all be Joseph. God help us be more like Joseph. But for most of us, feelings might as well be in Mandarin. What is that? It's like another language. But feelings are a part of how God has made us and are not inherently sinful when we feel something. Chip Dodd, in his book, Voice of the Heart, puts feelings as one of the five key aspects to living fully. Feelings, needs, desires, longings, and hope that must be understood and fulfilled in the way that God's created us to live a full life. And he he says this about feelings. Feelings speak the language of the heart. We come out of the womb experiencing life through our feelings. They They are primary to our human experience and awaken us to our hearts. We use feelings to communicate our God-given hunger for relationship. And unless we discover our ability to feel deeply and express feelings clearly, we will never find full life. And husbands, for most of us, our wives can help us tremendously in this. For most wives, not all, but it's generally true, God has given her more emotional intelligence And an understanding of her feelings and to understand her is to hear and listen to how she feels about you. How she feels about life, about the kids, about the stresses and pressures and the future. And that's not so you can swoop in and correct her feelings. Well, you shouldn't feel that way. Never say that. But listen and help understand how and why she feels this way, and what ways, in what ways this is good but this reveals about where she's at and how at times her feelings are revealing a struggle that you can pray for her first. Is she trusting you enough to share her feelings? Is she inviting you in to help? Like, honestly, brothers, I wonder how many of our wives are truly trusting us with their deepest feelings. Like, I wonder. We've stopped seeking to understand. We've only listened long enough to get aggravated and try to fix her or we just don't care because we're so stunted emotionally. We don't even value feelings and emotions. And there is this world our, our wives are existing in that we're not even invited to. She's hopefully running to Jesus with that. Or she's hopefully running to dear sisters in Christ with that. Or even counselors if need be. But is she, is she coming to us with that? Because we're safe. And, and we care. And it's, she knows we care. And we want to listen and understand It would be loving as her husband if we could begin to take steps to seek to understand her again with the same intensity and passion as when we first met her and we couldn't get enough of her and we want to know everything about her. Don't lose that. Part of understanding her is understanding life from her perspective as, thirdly, the weaker partner. The weaker partner. Now, this phrase should come with a trigger warning for our culture, However, God has created, the enemy of God wants to destroy, pervert, weaken, make less of. It's this cosmic battle that's been playing out from the time of creation. God clearly created humanity with gender distinctions. Male and female, he created us in his image, Genesis 1. And from the beginning, and especially since the fall in Genesis 3, there are distinctive realities to being male and female, distinctive roles to play even. And from the beginning, the enemy of God has and continues to want to destroy those distinctions because... They are part of the creative order. And so to say that one gender is a weaker partner automatically makes some just toss the Bible out as outdated, old fashioned, patriarchal, irrelevant. And you can read a bunch of scholars about what they think this means, and it, but, it, but it's clear that Peter's referring to the most obvious way in which wives are the weaker partner, and it's physically. It's just, there's nothing in the Bible that says women are weaker intellectually, emotionally, relationally, any, any other way. It's just physical. Just like with feelings and emotions, typically women have more emotional intelligence than men. So also typically men are physically stronger than females. It's why we've, from the beginning of time, had male and female divisions in things like athletics. And today one of the most offensive things to, to women as a result of the transgender movement has been what has happened in female athletics when mediocre male athletes begin to identify as female and compete in female athletic events, winning and breaking these long-standing records. It's horrific to women to have men doing that, and thankfully some states are taking action to keep that from happening. But it's a reality because of these inherent gender distinctives. Men are typically stronger, faster than their female counterparts. So a husband living out the reality of Jesus in him understands that about his wife, how that makes her vulnerable to him... And it makes her vulnerable in society at large every single woman who walks to her car in a dark parking lot thinks about this reality most guys don't think about this we just go get in our car we're not worried about someone physically overpowering us most of the time but our wives and our daughters think about this all the time when they're alone and they're vulnerable understanding her takes this into account so the husband also never ever imposes his will on her through his physical strength ever it's never okay to physically oppress abuse impose your will on your wife in any way it's not the way of christ it's evil and it's sinful And any wife who feels like her husband has physically imposed his will on her, either by actual physical abuse or the threat of physical abuse, I hope and pray she will speak up and get out until he can be held accountable. And if he won't repent and change, she has grounds for biblical divorce because of this. This was even more important in the first century when wives had nowhere close to the rights and the opportunities and the voice that wives have today. They were much more marginalized and oppressed in the first century. And one of the clear realities of Scripture, the gospel, the community of God's people is women have always been elevated in status among the people of God. We'll talk more about that next week. And so Peter telling husbands to take into account the weaker physical status of their wives and to understand and honor and value her in light of that gave such worth, and dignity to women in the first century Roman Empire Empire, and the strands of the Christian world alive today who tell women, and this exists, who are being abused or threatened with physical abuse and living under the threat of this abuse just to stay and submit. They're unraveling what God has put in place in passages like this, and it is wicked and it is evil. We recognize the differences in our wives and we don't exploit them for our gain. Instead, fourthly, we honor them. We honor them. Publicly, privately, we hold them up in value and give her honor. Again, in the context of her being weaker physically. He doesn't beat her down because she's not as strong as him. In fact, he holds her up, talks her up. Speaks highly of her. She is his wife. She is his co heir of eternal life. She says yes to you. She said yes to you. That alone should be worthy of your honor. But it's clear to her, it's clear to the kids, it's clear to others how much you value her, how much you love her more than just respect. This is higher than respect. This is honor, value, esteem, place high and you give that freely, so does she know that? Does she know that's how you feel about her? Do your closest male friends and coworkers know that's how you feel about your wife? Do the kids know it and see it, especially as they get older? How would your preteen, teenage, and adult children describe how dad honors mom? by God's grace, with God's help, make it so obvious, so clear, so unashamed. No one has to question it. It's blatantly clear. He thinks the world of her. She is his queen. Fifthly, as a co-heir of the grace of life, the biggest reason for all of this is because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. As the husband, you get no more of Jesus than she gets. Paul writes in Galatians 3, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ, there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed heirs according to the promise. Paul wasn't trying to wipe out all those distinctions when he wrote that. The slavery system of the Roman empire was still in place when he wrote that. Jews were still Jews and Greeks were still Greeks. Ethnic distinctions still existed back then. Males were still males and females were females. Gender distinctions didn't vanish when Paul wrote that. But none of those distinctions, Paul is saying, is ultimate when it comes to inheriting the promises of Christ. We've all been given a greater identity, one in Christ Jesus, and we all share that equally. We're going to have the same distinctions in heaven. We will have the same ethnicities in heaven because we see a description of people from all tribes and languages and nations and people gathered around the throne of God. We're going to be male and female in the eternal state. We see that in the resurrected appearances of Jesus himself. But we all get the same salvation. In fact, in the eternal state, we won't be married. And so this role as husband and wife is actually temporary. In the eternal state, we're just going to be brother and sister in Christ, hanging out, having a good time. And this reality should elevate our wives in our sight and give us even greater reason to honor her, understand her, value her, love her, show compassion and empathy and devotion. She's got just as much of the grace of life as you do, husband. Why would you ever think of yourself more highly than her? Why would you ever put yourself on a pedestal above her? Why would you ever find any justification to demean, degrade, talk down, demonize, abuse, hurt, devalue her in any way. Well, we do it because we're broken as sinners as well, in desperate need of Jesus. In whatever ways you see her flaws and failures, you have the same flaws and failures. They just look different. So you both need Jesus And this is what makes this kind of instruction necessary because marriage is hard. It's two sinners in the most intimate human relationship. And it doesn't play out like it does in the rom-coms and the Disney movies. They don't show the realities of what makes marriage hard. But it's also what makes marriage beautiful because as we see in other passages like Ephesians 5, in some mysterious way, ways that we can't even understand, We can live together as husband and wife and display the gospel and the way we relate to each other. How? I don't know. This is what we're supposed to do, and in some mysterious way, God makes it happen. As we obey these passages, we show the reality of Jesus in both of us. This is so important. Peter closes with a reminder that if we fail at this, husbands, Our failures with our wives can actually disrupt our relationship with God. This is how much your father in heaven cares about your wife. If you get this wrong, he kind of pulls the plug on you and him. Not permanently, but temporarily, your prayers are hindered. Whoa, 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 what's going on here? That's the the last thing, sixthly, so that our prayers won't be hindered. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 18... Our relationships can get so acrimonious that it can actually hinder our relationship to God. If we won't forgive someone, it could indicate we're not forgiven. If we're harboring bitterness, grudges, resentment against someone, it could hinder our worship with God. If we're just blatantly, openly, unashamedly sinning against someone, it can hinder our worship of God. So also, husbands, if you hear this verse today and could care less, if you're not even planning to ask for Jesus' help to live this out, okay, your prayers are going to be hindered. Guaranteed, you shouldn't take communion today until you repent. You're praying with your wife is another possible understanding of that. So if your wife doesn't feel understood, honored, valued, loved, treasured, good luck trying to pray with her. She only sees you as someone who's hurting her and doesn't love her. Good luck praying effectively with this, but the person you're called and commanded to love more than anyone else except for Jesus. So see this as so important that God puts a, a pause on your walk with him until you get this right. Puts a pause on your prayers. And remember all of this in the great context of 1 Peter. In the greater context of 1 Peter. How do we live in a fallen and broken world in such a way that not only shows the distinctions of what it means to have Jesus alive in us, but secondly, we can then give a gospel explanation in such a way that could win those who don't know Jesus to Him. That's what Peter's after. Yeah, you're living in a fallen, broken pagan culture. Live that distinctive life. Don't cave, don't compromise. Be genuine, real, authentic believers in order to win the pagan lost culture to Jesus. See this come up time and time again. So, what does that mean for us as husbands, loving our wives, caring for our wives, understanding our wives? How do we live as husbands in such a way that we are distinct from our lost culture in order to win our lost culture? To give this gospel explanation. So, husbands, my encouragement to you sit down with your wives one day this week and ask her to give a full and fair evaluation of how you're doing with 1 Peter 3 7. Does she feel honored? Does she feel understood? Does she feel protected as the weaker partner? Does she feel safe? Does she feel connected with? Does she feel valued as a co-heir with Jesus Christ? And wives, be honest. Be honest. We'll talk about verses one through six next week, but those verses never mean you're supposed to be silent while we chase sin or hurt you. Ever. Be honest, speak the truth and love. Help us to see our blind spots so that we can run to Jesus in repentance and faith and Jesus can help us be the husbands that he's called and created us to live. Father, we thank you so much that you make all these hard and difficult things possible. Apart from you, uh, as husbands, we, we would be such a mess in some ways we already are. And so help us to see ways in which we can love our wives better. Help us not to hide in our shame, but to come out into the open and to the light that is Christ and be forgiven, receive forgiveness, receive grace. Nothing gets fixed in, in the dark, it only gets fixed in the light. So help us to embrace that as husbands, to be real about where we struggle, to be real about how we fail, to be real about where we sinned, to be real and authentic with our wives and kids when we mess up, to go to them first. Help us do that. Seek repentance and forgiveness. And then fill our hearts as husbands with Such a love for the brides that you've given us, that you've put us with to be gospel partners. It's obvious to everyone. It's obvious to everyone how we feel. Help this be a body of believers, where it's not just true of husbands, but it's true of future husbands. And and then we're all helping each other live this out and holding each other accountable and spurring one another on, encouraging each other in these ways. When husbands get it right, there are younger singles coming along and saying, Awesome job, man. I love how you love your wife. I love how you honor her. I love how you value her and respect her. We're learning from older husbands who have done it well. We're asking questions. We're hungry. Gotta pray for the marriages in the crossing church that they would be of such. That our culture would sit up and take note about the reality of Jesus in us not make much of us God help that never happen but to make much of you because they see how much we need you how desperate we are for you for anyone here who doesn't know Jesus I pray today would be the day of their salvation as they turn from their sins and trust in him he's done everything necessary to provide a way and we pray these things in Jesus name amen